Um, it's good to be with you. Today what we're doing is we're continuing in our new series by looking at how we grow together. That's the subject of the series. And in the previous two weeks, what we've been doing is we've been looking at how healthy communities are created. So in week one, what we did is we explored the kind of culture, right, of invitation and, and patience and curiosity that is required to forge an authentic church community. And then last week, in week two, we looked at the core values of a healthy community, a core, these core values of diversity and grace and a spirit of submission, which become necessary for being the kind of church where people will stay, um, where they will stay. But this week, what we're doing, and, and then for, the, for next week, which is the final week of the series, what we're doing is we're shifting our focus to, for, for, to I'm sorry, oh, sticky pages. I can't blame them, actually. They're fine. This is just me getting tongue-tied. Anyways, what we're doing is we're shifting our focus from, from how we are forged and how we, how we commit to staying to what it is that we actually exist to do. And the short answer, the short answer, of course, is that healthy churches exist to grow, right? They are intended to bear spiritual fruit, as the Bible puts it. And that fruit is the evidence that we use to confirm that as a community we're on the right track. But the question, of course, becomes what does that spiritual fruit really look like? Is it as easy to recognize as we might think that it is? And how do we cultivate collectively? How do we cultivate an actual imagination for growing that fruit and then, of course, recognizing it when we see it together? So to talk about that, we're going to start by getting some of the the problems on the table. And the problem is you. Um, (laughs) It's me. It's me, too. Because, because of this reason, right? So for, for most people who are exploring religious faith, what we're hunting is initially and intensely personal to us. We, we sense something missing in our lives. Uh, maybe we're wrestling with, with guilt, or maybe we're working through a difficult season. And we come to church, right, looking for hope and looking for direction. Now, that's not true of everybody, right? It's not true of everybody in here. Some folks walk through the doors of the church because they have a partner who is religious and they want to support that partner. And some folks walk through the doors because they're looking for like a moral support system for their children. And some folks come through the doors because they're seeking deeper friendships in their lives and this is a place where they might be able to find them. But particularly in American culture, the starting point for our imagination about religion still tends to be about us. I want to grow or change or become a better parent or become a better friend. And so that's fine. We meet people where they are. That's who I am too. But the issue is that if we're approaching a church community from that vantage point, the health of that church community is something we're counting on more than it's something we think we contribute to. Now, again, I don't think this is wrong. I think this is a natural way for churches in this this culture to exist. It's a natural way for us to be. But the issue is that it creates a tension in any church's mission. And we see the evidence of this tension in how most churches conceive of their ministries and their programs, which often, of course, focus on personal growth, right, through things like Bible studies and daily devotionals and guides for private prayer, we, we have teams, right, that we invite you to participate on, but we sell volunteering on those teams by emphasizing how good volunteering is going to be for you. American churches, including this one, often strive 
to meet your individual hunger with individualized care. The health of the community, then, is imagined as like the inevitable byproduct of a bunch of healthy people. And this is why most churches tend to evaluate their communal health through using things like butts and seats or dollars in the offering box. Because the idea is that if people are personally happy, then they're going to keep showing up and they're going to donate to the ministry. And so we can track whether you're happy by looking whether you're here and what you give. And if you're happy, then we're good. But is this actually how we're supposed to be thinking about growth? Is this actually a model, right, that the Bible supports or one that Jesus preaches? Are the spiritual fruits that we're looking for really higher attendance and deeper pockets? After all, I don't think we have to look very hard at the gospel to see that Jesus' personal ministry challenges this model. Over and over again, Jesus turns away from crowds to focus in on his 12 closest friends. I've, been, I've heard it said that Jesus is a terrible church planter, right? Like he starts, there are times where he has a ministry of like 10,000, at the end he has 12, 11. So he killed it. He killed the church. But he turns away from those crowds to focus on individuals. And the one time in the Bible that we see Jesus hang out near an offering box, what happens, right? He sees and he says that the poor widow who puts in two coins has given more than the richest Jews and the most faithful Jews in Jerusalem. So how can we discover a deeper imagination, a deeper imagination for what growing looks like beyond how you and how I get personally closer to God as individuals? We just have one vocal text here this morning, and it comes from Paul's second letter to the Christians in the city of Corinth. So the Corinthian community was known for its spirits of individualism and competition, so we look to it often as an analog for some of the things we wrestle with in our own culture. And the Christians in Corinth struggled with this desire to find out what following Jesus could do for them, how it could benefit them. Now, this doesn't mean the Christians in Corinth were bad people, right? But it means that some significant rewiring in their imaginations for communal growth had to happen if the church was going to be healthy. So what does Paul say to contribute to that rewiring work? He writes this. He says, for the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for the one who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we no longer know him in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Look, new things have come into being. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Not, I'm sorry, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting that message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made the one who knew no sin to be sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, this is heady stuff. We've already had a heady morning, right? We had like an excellent story to share from Joe. We had worship. Now I'm like getting into ministry of reconciliation stuff. There have not been enough jokes yet. <laughs> but I think we can learn a lot here if we break, if we try to break this down. So the key concept is reconciliation. We need to know what that means, which means that, and this isn't a joke at all, it's etymology time. My favorite, my favorite time <laughs> in church. So I'm having a good time now. So we're going to start with the, with the root here. And the root word is conciliate. Right? Now, you see the word conciliate in terms that still exist in, in our language all the time, like conciliatory, which maybe isn't a word you often, but we see that same root even in a word like counsel. It means literally, literally, conciliate means to call together, to call together. For Paul and other Greek speakers in the first century, the sense, the fuller sense of this word was to bring to harmony, not just to call together the way you might call in a meeting, but to bring people to harmony. So the job of the Christian and the job of the church is to be harmonic and to call to harmony. And this makes sense, I think, right? Like, like we said at the start, if a person in our community is feeling out of sync or if they're feeling out of harmony with themselves or with the world or with their life, with God, with their spouse, with, with anything, then the church is a place that they can be drawn to which can foster that harmony in them. The individual seeker can come here and find purpose, can find harmony. But the ministry, Paul says, that we're all given isn't a ministry of conciliation, right? It's a ministry of reconciliation. So here's the question. What does that R-E mean? What do you think? You know this. What? To do again, exactly. It means to do again. So what is Paul's point here? His point is that God is bringing back together things that have been separated in the world. This means, and this is our key point today, this means that if the individual within the church stays an individual, reconciliation has not happened. Because separating out from a healthy community was the original problem. You can't build a healthy church that's composed of uniquely healthy people. You have to bring people together to rediscover what actual health is. Now, there are four relationships, four conciliations that have been broken in this passage and that need to be reconciled. Your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with others, and your relationship with the world. Now, these aren't new things that you need to discover. The idea isn't that you are an individual at loose in the world and we're trying to stitch you into things. The idea in scripture is that you were stitched into things, you have become an individual in the world, and now you need to come home to these relationships. They're old. They're original things that you need to find again. Now, your relationship with God, we believe as Christians, 
is broken by sin. That's the term that we use. But sin is less about doing bad things, right? This is how Joe grew up hearing it described. Like sin is the stuff that I'm told not to do. But it's less about doing bad things than it is forgetting about how to do right things. You and I are created good. This is the core thing in our scripture. We're created to be God's loved, beloved children. But like children often do, we become willful and we rebel against the harmony and the relationships that we're made for. And this looks like setting out for ourselves, right? Believing that we know better, elevating ourselves is the primary focus of our lives. Me first thinking, if you want to think about it that way. Most of us do this, however, not because we think we're awesome. This is where I think a lot of us get confused. We get this me first mindset. We know that it's not good. Where does that me first mindset come from? A lot of times churches will tell you it's because you are too proud. You're too arrogant. You're too like high and mighty on yourself. I haven't been doing this job that long, but I've been doing it long enough to know I have yet to meet one person who thinks about themselves this way. All of you think you're terrible, frankly. <laughs> it's not even a joke. This is how it is. <laughs> so if the issue, if the rebellion isn't the result of you just thinking you know best and you're the most awesome, what's the rebellion the result of? The answer is that you're afraid. You become afraid that if you don't take care of yourself, nobody else will. The reconciliation power of the gospel is that Jesus chooses to identify with us, to suffer with and for us, in order to answer that fear. By dying and living again, Jesus shows us that no matter what befalls us, it is impossible for us to actually be separated from God's love. And so, if we can bring ourselves to let go of our fear that that is possible, our fear that we could be alone, that we could be abandoned, if we can let go of that fear and the rebellion that fear has led us to, then we can be reconciled in that relationship with God. We can go back to a place of trusting him. And the amazing thing is that if we can go back to that place of trusting him, we can find rest, actual rest. And so that's reconciliation number one. You were made good. You were made in relationship with God. Because you were afraid, you have rebelled. But you can come home to trust God's love for you. And the idea here is that reconciliation number one ought to lead to reconciliation number two, which is a right relationship with ourselves. If we can learn to trust God's love for us, his desire to pursue us no matter what, then the idea is we can begin to see ourselves the way he sees us. We can begin to see ourselves as people worthy of being pursued. Now, that doesn't mean we're the center of the universe, right? It means that we are one beloved part of a beloved universe. We aren't in competition with each other for God's affection. God's affection is freely and infinitely given. And if we can learn to feel that way about ourselves, Paul says that we are able to, quote, no longer live for ourselves. We're free of that need to constantly be worrying about ourselves. And instead, we can live for the one who for our sake died and was raised. 
reconciliation with ourselves then, seeing ourselves as God sees us, as worthy of his love and affection, as precious to him. That is what enables the third reconciliation, which is reconciliation with others. If we don't have to prove anything to God, if God loves us unconditionally, then we don't have to be in competition with anybody else to prove that we're more deserving than they are. We don't have to compete with anybody. And freed from that sense of rivalry and competition, we can learn to see other people as God sees them. We can value a whole person, their strengths and their weaknesses, their gifts, their flaws, their good decisions, and their bad decisions. And we can feel deep love for them. And that empathy, that capacity to love the whole of another person, not just what you like about them, but even what you don't like about them, to love that whole person, to see them as God sees them, that empathy right, is one of the conciliations that we lose over the course of our lives, where once again, fear takes hold and separates us from each other. You might be a threat to me. You might be a rival to me. But if we are alive in Christ, we need not feel that fear. And we can be brave in opening ourselves empathetically up to other people. That's reconciliation three. Reconciliation three with others then opens the door for reconciliation number four with the world. Being alive to God, alive to ourselves, alive and present to our neighbors, neighbors, enables us to be loving caretakers of God's creation. In fact, it enables us to join God in that work, to see the world in which we've been placed selflessly, not looking for what we can take from it or what we can exploit in it, right? But instead, just looking at the beauty of what it gives, period. Which means that we are freed up. If we can get rid of those fears, get past those fears, rest in who God is and what he says about us and what he says about our neighbors, if we can get to that spot, then we become free to be nurturers again. As the Bible says, Adam and Eve once were. We can be people who cultivate beauty and health and growth in the world that we're in. Because again, we're not afraid that somebody's going to take something from us. All of this is made possible because God is committed to the work of reconciliation. He seeks to bring all things back to harmony with his intentions for them, to conciliate. He does this at a huge cost. And his vision for us as his church is to be ambassadors of that reconciliation in a broken world. Paul says this is the ministry that has been entrusted to us, entrusted to us. And if that is the case, if that's our job together, it is the key to recalibrating and reimagining what in the world church health actually means. If that's our job, like how small do things like butts and seats and deep pockets feel compared to that calling? And how ensnared in those old fears and the selfishness those fears lead to do those things sound? So if reconciliation is our actual ministry, what does that mean for how we grow together here at Revolution? How can any of this, which all might have felt really abstract, shape and influence the culture of this like one little church of people in Annapolis? I think 
It offers us the chance to embrace three values and remember one truth. I'm racing here. I know that I'm running long. I'll be quick. Here they are. The first value is authentic vulnerability. This is something we have to grow. It's not something any of us can do on our own and expect it to still work. We have to be naked about our fears because as what Paul wrote to the Corinthians exposes, it's our fears, right, that lead us to separate from one another, to get into competition with each other and to hide our weaknesses from each other. So certainly authentic vulnerability starts here on the stage, right? I can say this all day long. We have to be authentically vulnerable. If I'm not doing it, it's not going to happen. And not just me, but everybody that leads worship, everybody that comes up, even folks from the community like Joe who come up, we have to be authentically vulnerable if this is actually going to take root. I need to be honest about who I am, weaknesses and all. But the culture we need to create, right, isn't just limited to those people in visible roles. You need to face your fears and to choose vulnerability too. What we can do can foster that. We can encourage that in you. But we can't do it for you. We can't stop you from like just showing up, sitting in the back, not talking to anybody, and like checking in next week. And if vulnerability and authenticity are going to be part of our church culture, they have to be something that's spread among us, that we feel encouraged and safe to do. We all have to choose them or they're not going to be real. Does that make sense that this has to be all of us, not just me or the other people on stage? Now, the second value is connected to the first because the second value is this, gracious acceptance. Gracious acceptance. This has to go hand in hand with all of that vulnerability or the vulnerability is going to wither on the vine, right? It also has to begin with the deep understanding among us that we are people who have been graciously accepted that we're not on thin ice with God, right? That he loves us plentifully, that he loves us overwhelmingly, that he's not mad at us, that he's not waiting to call us out every time that we stumble. The Bible shows us a God who longs for us to rest in his affection for us, who grieves that fear that keeps us turned away from him and uneasy and not at rest. And he will do anything to place his hand on our cheek, right, and invite us to look at him again. And that same level of grace and love has to be everywhere here if we're going to be ambassadors of it for anybody else. That's the thing about being an ambassador, right? You can't represent a country that you don't already belong to. To offer reconciliation, we have to believe in it and experience it. So church communities are meant to be the places where that happens, where you're lovingly and patiently accepted. A long time ago, I said that a helpful litmus test for any church is to imagine the feelings of a 16-year-old who's just learned that she's pregnant. Is your church the first or the last place that she might want to go? But the same test holds if we imagine someone who's just been released from jail or who's mired in addiction or whose marriage is actively falling apart. Do we do justice to the love that we feel from God by extending it just as passionately and open-handedly and acceptingly towards each other? The third value that we have to embrace together is patient challenge. The point of all this authentic vulnerability and the opportunity created by all that gracious acceptance is to be nurtured towards change. None of us has everything figured out. We all need to continue being reconciled to God to ourselves, to others, to the world. 
And the key to that sort of growth is accepting challenges, right, that push us within a community that is patient with us as we struggle. Here's a not-so-spiritual illustration of what this looks like. As many of you know, I was a smoker for 20 years, and now, for most of that time, I was not very authentic or vulnerable with you about it. In fact, I hid it from most of you, and I hid it from, uh, really, myself. But I didn't hide it from everybody, and a few of you went on many a walk with me, like late at night somewhere, while I puffed away, and you were nice. You were nice to me. But eventually, I realized at some point that I wasn't taking very good care of myself, that I wasn't loving myself in the way that God loves me, and I accepted a certain challenge to change. I even told some of you about that challenge, not very seriously because I didn't want you to hold me to it, but like very generally, <laughs> I would say stuff like, it's probably time to knock this off, right? Or like, I don't really want to be doing this in my 40s. Like, it's time to grow up. Um, now, here's the thing, right? If you hadn't shown me gracious acceptance all along, I don't think I would have shared any of that with you. Even my little efforts to change, I wouldn't have shared. Even getting this far depended on God nudging me, right, to be vulnerable, and then God nudging you to tolerate my unhealthy behavior, which you probably didn't like. But if things had ended there, right, with just me being honest and you loving me anyways, right, that would be nice, but things probably would never have changed. What it took for me to change was your willingness not just to accept me, but to keep asking me about it, to remind me of my goals and to check in with me about my goals while still being willing to go on a walk with me even in the middle of my wrestling. The push and pull of our relationship and your investment in me kept that flame of change like alive. And it also gave me something to be excited about when I finally knocked it off, right? Because I was eager to tell you about it. That's so wild, right? I knew you wanted something different from me enough that I was excited to share the good news with you. But I also knew that you loved me anyways. We need challenge and patience. Folks in our lives who desire our health, but who see our well-being as connected to their well-being. That's the last big truth we need to remember, and then I'm wrapping up. Communal growth requires a community mindset. Our health is connected we can't run out ahead of each other in our spiritual lives. We, we hang back, love each other, encourage one another, challenge one another, and we live graciously all the while. This, this spirit has to be at the center of our church because that's actually what it means to have the spirit of reconciliation. It fro- flows from believing that we can be whole again because we believe that deep down we were made to be whole. It's not something that we're racing to achieve, to like become good Christians. It's something we're rediscovering. And for a long time, I think I thought about self-sacrifice as something that we're called to embrace as Christians and something that I understood as like obliterating myself for your sake. Like I'm just going to destroy me so that you can do well and then that's going to be deemed righteous and holy. And then like, you know, like Joe said, like 80 years of, of obliterating myself in exchange for eternity is a good deal. But that's not it, right? Self-sacrifice is actually exactly the thing Jesus models for us when he steps back from his own race in order to join us in ours. It's not giving up my goals. It's sharing my goals with you, aligning my goals with yours, allowing them to be reconciled with what we are called to together as a community. 
I can't parse out my health from your health or my growth from your growth. We're one body and we grow together. If you're not yet reconciled, right, I can't move on without you and then still claim to be an ambassador of reconciliation. So this is my prayer and our challenge, to be truly one with each other, to see ourselves all as parts of this singular church body and to discover the joy in that partnership that God has designed us for. That, I think, is what we can do, and that's how we grow together.